Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irina Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and consultant to the dating app industry. And I'm Michelle Lang, a senior lecturer in psychology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and a clinical psychologist in private practice. All views expressed in this podcast are our own and not our employers. Today, we're going to switch gears to explore how to take care of one's mental health while dating, as well as what it's like to date while dealing with mental illness oneself and or if one's significant other has a mental condition. Let's dive right in. Michelle and I were very excited to see that according to recent numbers, 97% of singles want to date someone who takes care of their mental health, and 86% say they're more likely to go on a second date with someone who mentioned on a first date that they go to therapy. Today, we want to have an open discussion about the entire spectrum of mental health and how it relates to dating. Michelle, where should we begin, given that you are our psychology expert on the show? Thanks. I definitely agree with what you were saying. It's good to see that stigma is decreasing, both around having mental health issues and getting support for them. Because if we look at the statistics, what our statistics show is that in any given year in America, one in five adults will be diagnosed with a mental health condition. And over the course of a lifetime, over 50% of adults will be diagnosed with a mental health condition. I teach a class at my university called Abnormal Psychology. That's the typical name for the class where we talk about mental health conditions. But there's a movement in the field now, and I'm proud to say at my university, we will be making this change, changing the name of the class because it's not actually abnormal by those statistics, right? If more than 50% of people deal with mental health conditions at some point, that's the norm. It's no longer abnormal. And so I'm glad to see that that is being reflected in some of these recent polls that have asked daters about how they feel. I think it is important for our potential daters to know that some people still do carry the stigma though. And so while on this podcast, you're going to hear advocacy for taking care of your mental health, that that's a positive thing, it is important to understand that there are going to be some people out there who still carry that stigma and that they may reject you if you disclose that you have a mental health issue. But We just want to reinforce that that's okay. That's perfectly fine because you don't want to date somebody who doesn't see you as more than your illness anyway. You want to date somebody who sees you for all what makes up who you are. And so it's okay if they have that stigma, that's their problem, not yours. But I definitely think looking at this idea of valuing somebody who seeks therapy, seeking support through therapy is a positive thing for a few different reasons. One, that promotes honesty and it promotes having a solution focus rather than promoting shame or hiding the fact that you're struggling. And those kind of attitudes are going to make for healthier relationships, not just around mental health issues or therapy, but in other areas as well. And if you're seeking out help, going to therapy to deal with struggles with your mental health, it's really good to have a partner who wants the best for you. Somebody who says, I want you to do that, if that's what's helping you. That's the kind of person you want in your corner. And it helps when you're going to therapy, but it's also going to help in challenges in other areas of life as well. So it is good to know, are you compatible with somebody on this dimension? 
You know, I'll also say there's a stereotype out there that it does have some truth to it, where people will say, I need therapy because someone else who's a key person in my life won't get it, whether they're like, you know, I need therapy because my mom's messed up, or I need therapy because there's other dysfunction in my family of origin, or because my partner has issues that they won't deal with. Sometimes there really is some truth to that, that there's dysfunction going on that the person who's seeking out therapy is not the cause of, but when they try to act functional in a dysfunctional system, their functional behavior is rejected. And there is some truth to that. That's not true all the time. Sometimes you do need help because you're acting in a way that's dysfunctional or distressing. But you know, it is important to understand that people who aren't willing to get help tend to perpetuate dysfunctional patterns. Whereas with therapy, people who are willing to get help are the ones who are going to learn more functional ways of communicating, of dealing with their problems, more functional coping skills and strategies. And even just the fact that their willingness to seek out help tells us something about this person, that they see value in collaborating with a professional towards a desired outcome rather than carrying all the weight on their own or putting it unfairly on their partner. And that's also the kind of person you want in your corner. So all to say, I think those statistics are encouraging and I think that they're correct. It's not a bad thing, but rather I would argue is actually a good thing if the person you're dating is in therapy. It's unlikely to hurt matters and it's likely to help matters. You know, this is all so interesting, what you're saying, Michelle. And that's very exciting that they're going to change the name of abnormal psychology, a class that I also took in college however uh, many years ago, right, 20 years ago or whatnot. And we are seeing more and more open discussions, more so in, I would say, some professions than others, like certainly the law and legal academia still has a lot of progress to make uh, in this area. I think some other professionals are a bit more uh, advanced uh, in that area, but we are going in the right direction. And essentially, a lot of people who are not seeking therapy are people who are in denial, as we see, and they think something, everything is everyone else's fault, or they're so depressed that they don't think things can be fixed, which, you know, that that's a, a sad point to, to get to also the things I was curious about, because we are dealing with strangers on the internet, is what do you think about how should people, how should daters broach the topic of mental illness generally? And like, how can you be vulnerable without oversharing? So like, how can you figure out what the right kind of boundaries are, especially when going back to what you were saying about family of origin, when your family of origin did perhaps not give you a good sense of boundaries, which can send you either into complete shutdown or complete oversharing? How do we find a balance? Can you give some pointers? Yeah, I think those are great questions. So I would say, as we've talked about previously on this show, you want to present a fair and accurate, but also, you know, well-behaved image of yourself on early dates and in early interactions with people, being considerate of them and erring on the side of being cautious because being cautious is more considerate when you don't know what might offend somebody else or make the situation between the two of you uncomfortable. In general, I think that that follows to tell us we want to feel out, does this feel like a safe person to be vulnerable with? You don't go into a situation just being like, I am who I am. People will like me or hate me. I mean, I know people do that, but I don't think you should because it exposes you, it increases your risk profile in terms of you being hurt by somebody. I think that it's always a good idea 
to feel out information about this person who you're on a date with or who you're talking to to try to figure out do they seem as though they'd be a safe person to share something that is important to your life an important struggle you're dealing with or and this is not true for everyone who deals with mental illness but for some people it is something that might even feel central to your identity in some kind of ways or really an important part of you and so as with anything else that you might feel really strongly about say like your political party or something i don't know do you go into a date wearing a candidate shirt you know or do you go in more casually and and try to feel out is this somebody who is worth my energy to to share something with that's personal to me and so i would say look for signs with anything that you feel vulnerable about including what mental health struggles you might have look for signs that this is a safe person to open up to and then from there what i would say is know what your comfort zone is and start with tiptoes outside of your comfort zone rather than large leaps outside of your comfort zone. Take small risks disclosing things to people rather mm -hmm. than large risks. And so you can decide what that might end up looking like is you could decide to feel out how they might feel about mental health issues in a more broad way by discussing something that has been newsworthy relating to mental health topics to see how they feel rather than making it more personal to you at first. Now, for some people, they might just say, no, this is really central to my identity and I want somebody to know right off the bat. And that's okay. I mean, you can you can share it. I think the answer how to broach it is going to depend on how comfortable do you feel with getting rejected if you share something that the other person does not see eye to eye with you on and how comfortable are you and accepting are you of understanding that not everyone may be as educated as you about the topic of your mental health condition. So sometimes people may be ignorant, not necessarily in a bad way, just in a lacking knowledge way. And it's going to be helpful if you are willing to understand and guide them through what they need to know if they sound like they're willing to learn rather than look at them negatively for not knowing. Not everyone has had conversations where somebody talks about their mental health issues. So I guess I would say how to bring it up. I feel like it's not a first date item of conversation unless it's something that based on how somebody responds to it, you would know you never want to see them again and you just want to get it out of the way on the first date. But for most people, they don't want to have serious vulnerability conversations on a first date. And I think that's healthy. And so even if you want to know, is this somebody who will ride with me through my mental health struggles? It's still a lot to put that on somebody from a first date. So that's what I mean about the considerateness of first, let's just kind of feel each other out. See, do I generally like you? And then when you're ready to bring it up, you could either do it indirectly by way of reference to something you had read or something that's going on in the news or directly in terms of talking about your issues. That's what I would say. You know, I was thinking the exact same thing as you in terms of like floating the topic generally. See how this person feels about mental health. Because if you're going to get a negative reaction at the general level, then no, you don't want to share that with this person. And I think it's right. also just, honestly, that's something where even if you yourself don't have a mental health issue and, and you find out this person has a problem with it, that should be a huge red flag. 
Because you know what? You don't know when you might develop, whether it's a mental health issue or a health issue, right? If this is supposed to be potentially a lifelong partner, like we just don't know. You said like half of all people will develop an issue at some point, right? So when you think about all the things that could happen to people together, mental illness and physical illness, at some point, everyone's going to have a problem. So if somebody is just not willing to accept the fact of human frailty and be considerate around that, then you should not be spending more time with this person because they're going to hurt you one way or another. Now, all this being said, some people are going to be a better fit than others. And I think we should talk a little bit about what are the things that you know you should or might want to be open to dealing with uh, when it comes to somebody else's mental health struggles. And what are things where you should say, no, you know what, this is too much, or this is now going to be a danger to myself or to my own life? Yeah, I've got two easy answers to that, I I think. Um, I think I'm not oversimplifying it. But I would say one time where you shouldn't deal with somebody's Uh, somebody else's mental health issues, somebody who you're dating, is if they're not willing to do anything about it. What you should not do is take ownership for solving someone else's problem no matter what, Um, because it's a fallacy. You can't actually solve someone else's problem. And they are in charge of their own life, their own decisions, their own viewpoints, their own actions. And so I would say if somebody is not taking care of their own mental health, What you can do is if you feel comfortable enough with that person, you can share your observations and your concerns. You can say, I'm worried about you. I feel like I've seen these things going on. I'm worried about how you might be doing mental health wise. You know, I think maybe you should talk to somebody. You could say that. You could suggest what you think somebody might do or just at the very least tell them you're worried about them and and that it feels to you as though they're not managing well. at at the present moment. Um, But what you can't do is make them go to counseling. If you did, and I've certainly, as a therapist, I've had some people show up in my office who are like, I'm here because X person in my life says I have to go. And I always tell them, well, in that case, you can go home and tell that person that I said you don't have to because people who go to therapy by force and not by choice are not going to get things out of it. It also invites dishonesty, because it may make people just say, yeah, I'm totally going to see my therapist. And, you know, the partner will never know because therapists can't disclose who's actually attending their appointments and all of that. People can even schedule appointments and then just not show up for them. So you have to accept, one, that you'll never know if somebody's actually attending their appointments or not. But you will know, I think, through what changes you see in their behavior and how they're thinking, if they seem to be improving. And so I would definitely say if somebody's not taking care of their own mental health and not taking responsibility for taking care of their own mental health, then that's not on you to put up with. People need to be willing to take care of themselves first before they can be a meaningful contributor to a relationship. And so that's one situation where I would say you should not deal with it if somebody else's mental health problems, if they're not taking care of them themselves. And don't show a willingness to. And the other case I would say is if their mental health problem is triggering to you and that's just not going to work for you, you don't owe it, particularly to a stranger from the internet. It's, you know, maybe different if you're already in a long-term relationship with somebody and a mental health issue develops, but you don't owe it to somebody who you're newly talking to or newly dating to ignore your own boundaries of comfort for this person. And so, uh, for example, A common one I have seen is people who have either 
dealt with alcohol abuse themselves or have seen alcohol abuse in their family of origin that has caused significant problems. And then they want to date somebody, but they realize that person seems to have a problem with alcohol as well. I would say it's okay to just not date that person. If that person isn't acknowledging that they have a problem with alcohol, isn't trying to change their relationship with alcohol, and that could be true of other disorders as well. I'm just using that as an example. Other disorders perhaps where somebody has regular suicidal ideation. And if you have dealt with suicidal ideation, if that's something that's triggering to you, you know, it may not be emotionally safe for you to be in a relationship with somebody for whom that comes up regularly. And so I think if what they're dealing with represents a trigger for you, it's also okay to not pursue something with them. Something we've talked about several times in different episodes on this show is just because somebody's nice or a good person doesn't mean you owe it to them to date them. So somebody might be a very nice, good person. You think they'd make a great partner for someone else, but not for you. Then let them go be a partner to somebody else. That's not personal to them. It's you looking out for yourself. And those are, those are the two that easily come to mind for me. Otherwise, I mean, off the top of my head, I'm kind of inclined to say I hope for people that they would not treat struggles with mental health as a deal breaker for the reasons you mentioned, that it tells us about how they treat when the going gets tough in general. Um, and, And if they're willing to run when the going gets tough about mental health issues or even just the knowledge of a mental health issue, you might not even be having a real problem with it at the moment, then you know, the, I would I would find it hard to believe that person would be there for me under other circumstances. Now, let me throw, a, I have so many questions, but let me throw a little bit of a wrench into this, which mm-hmm. is we've had a whole episode about narcissists, right? Yes. What do we do uh, when the mental health issue is narcissistic? Hey, I'm, I'm going to make this a two-part question. When it is narcissistic okay. personality disorder, or I'm going to ask any other personality disorder, just because we know how more resistant to treatment some of them can be than, than some other yes. mental health issues. Okay. So my answer is still not going to change, but I will provide a little more information. So with narcissistic personality disorder, and I will also add in there antisocial personality disorder, those two disorders are particularly resistant to treatment. And the reason why is because the people with those disorders don't want treatment. So it still actually fits with what I said earlier about a lack of willingness for treatment being a reason why not. And so that those are just specific disorders that are much more likely to fall under that category because to treat narcissistic personality disorder or antisocial personality disorder means for the person with that disorder to acknowledge that it can't be all about them all the time, that other people's needs matter and that other people should be treated with dignity and respect and not constantly playing games with them. But for the person with narcissistic personality disorder or antisocial personality disorder, they're like, but that would make it harder for me to get what I want. Why would I do that? So that's why those disorders are resistant to treatment. Many personality disorders are not resistant to treatment. In fact, one that is highly successful in treatment rates is borderline personality disorder. Um, There's a specific type of therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, that's especially effective in treating borderline personality disorder. So it really just kind of depends across the personality disorders how willing somebody is to, A, acknowledge why it's a disorder. What is it doing that's causing problems, either in their 
life directly or indirectly through how it might make it hard for them to relate meaningfully and respectfully to others. And if they understand that, and then secondly, are willing to seek help for it, I don't think other personality disorders are deal breakers. I will say, in my personal opinion, antisocial personality disorder is always a deal breaker, just because I kind of feel like by definition, antisocial personality disorder means Mm -hmm. do not care about the basic human dignity of other people and will always put your own needs above other people. And narcissism has some very similar issues. Narcissism could be treated But that's why we've talked about differences between narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder, because while narcissism can be treated, it's tougher with narcissistic personality disorder because it is more ingrained. There really is that inherent, it seems like it would not get me what I wanted as quickly or as thoroughly if I were to consider what worked for other people. So I do feel like they still might be deal breakers, but for the same reason I mentioned earlier, because of the lack of willingness to seek help. Yeah, no, that's super, that's super interesting and important. And, you know, you can't have somebody playing the card either of, well, you you can't, you know, I have narcissistic personality disorder, or you think I have narcissistic personality disorder, but you can't stigmatize me for that. You can't not want me in your life. And like, there's a difference here. You can say, okay, I'm not saying that makes you a bad person. I'm not saying you chose this and this is the brain the universe gave you. But that doesn't mean that there is a space for you in my life. Uh, and I think that's sort of what the distinction is. But another thing I'm wondering about, and that brings us back to some extent to the, the stats in the beginning. Do you think everybody should be in therapy, A, individually? And frankly, should couples seek counseling before they actually have problems? Should, should people just as a routine matter when they're in a serious relationship, just go see couples counselors? Because you know what, eventually they're going to end up with some kind of problem. And so maybe setting up the right communication structures when the going is good would be helpful. No? Yeah. Well, admittedly, I'm, I'm double biased to this one, because it's my actual job being a therapist. And two, because the reason that it's my job is because I saw the value in therapy and what it could do for somebody's life. And and so that's part of why I pursued, a large part of why I pursued this career. And so, I mean, my biased answer is yes, I think everyone could benefit from therapy. And I definitely think couples can. And I honestly think that maybe even more and more because with our society being what it is, I mean social media and just the globalization of kind of everything certainly makes it easier for us to connect and communicate with people who aren't in our immediate geographical area. But it also lends itself to some barriers in communication as well. Like you can't always tell somebody's inflection or tone, you know, if you are writing rather than talking face-to-face, you can't pick up on body language type of things, and you can get a false sense of really thinking you know everything about this person based on the selective pieces of conversation you have had. And if you're meeting through dating apps or other types of social media, you know, you've probably already met based on some specific interests you have put out there. And so you're more aware of what you already have in common with people which can give you this halo effect of if we've got these things in common, we must have all things in common. All, you know, all things that I value must also be things this person values. And that's not true. And so I think therapy can be really helpful helpful for couples to talk about 
their major values, each member of the couple's respective major values, where they respectively fall on that issue and where they don't fall in the same spot, how are they going to navigate that? Because you do need to know and be willing to work with your partner's core values if the relationship is going to be successful. And so I think couples counseling can be helpful for that in general. And I also think it can be really helpful just for teaching people how to communicate effectively, because there are so many ways that people can communicate dysfunctionally. And we do that more often than effectively because it tends to be easier, even though it is less fulfilling. We're quick to just cut people off, just stop talking to them if we don't like what they have to say, or become passive aggressive or play games with them. And none of those are helpful ways to communicate with somebody. They aren't any more likely to get you the outcome you want. It's just kind of quicker to be like, I don't feel like dealing with them anymore. I don't know how to deal with them. So I'm throwing up my hands rather than learning how to deal with them, which is what couples counseling can help with. I also think there are couples who are considering therapy, one or both of the partners may fear that the therapist is going to tell them one of them's wrong and the other's right about an issue. And that's not what's going to happen. Therapist's job in couples counseling is to actually to help the couples hear each other better and to communicate in more effective ways. So pointing out, you know, the way you said that sounded sarcastic rather than genuine. If you were to reframe that genuinely, what would it sound like? Or, okay, I can hear how you're responding to your partner's comment as if they said, A, but I heard the same thing from them, but I heard it as B, not A. You know, which which did you actually mean? And could we talk through that a little more? Or a therapist can point out things like paralanguage, tone of voice, or body language. Or could you look at your partner when you say that? Or notice that your partner's tearing up when you say this. And it helps couples to learn how to communicate, how to do so effectively, and then also can help them then have a platform for talking through the tough issues. So yeah, I mean, I tend to say, it can't hurt and it would help. I guess I'll add one more thing, which is sometimes, unfortunately, by the time couples are willing to seek out counseling, one of them is already checked out um, and is not really serious about counseling at that point. And so as a result of that, sometimes people will say, I tried counseling and then we broke up. Well, you know, a breakup isn't always a bad outcome if you guys aren't meant to be together. And if counseling is what helped reveal that truth, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But Counseling can also be revealing in terms of are both partners coming there willing to talk? Because what you might find is one partner shuts down and is not participating in the conversation. And that can be understandably off-putting to the other partner, but also it may come about because maybe the one partner has already made up their mind. So I would, I would encourage counseling for couples and certainly on the sooner rather than later end if there's an issue. One thing that I'm curious about Michelle is, you know, I would imagine therapists are in a pretty tricky situation because on the one hand, they don't want to take sides in most scenarios, but then what do they do when they're facing people where let's say one partner really is being abusive with the other. Let's say one partner 
does have narcissistic personality disorder or not, or there's like maybe even something that the therapist gets to witness. So there's no debate about, oh, this or that happened in the past. No, it happens in the therapist's office or virtual office, right in front of the therapist's eyes. Somebody starts screaming at the other person or engaging in, you know, what Gottman would call the, the four horsemen, right? Like sarcasm, for example, or, or one of those kinds of behaviors. So, so the therapist really got to witness it. What happens in the moment? How can the therapist or how should the therapist intervene? Yeah, so a good therapist should point that out. A good therapist should be willing to call reality for what it is and essentially say things that other people would be thinking but may just feel so uncomfortable they wouldn't know how to say out loud. And so I've certainly had things like that happen. And it so if it is them saying something sarcastically or while rolling their eyes, I as the therapist might point that out and say, I'm wondering if there is meaning to what you said, but your tone makes it hard to know if you really mean it or not. And and your tone is not very inviting uh, in terms of engaging in a meaningful conversation. Could we try reframing and rephrasing what you what you wanted to say there? And then if it is more like yelling or screaming or cutting each other off, I, as a therapist, would just say, I'm sorry, but this is unacceptable behavior for how to talk to another person. And certainly in this session, we cannot have you yelling, screaming, or cutting somebody off. And you give them a chance to apologize in that moment. Um, and hopefully they will. But as a therapist, you you really reinforce, we cannot continue this session if you're going to be engaging in this behavior. And if you see anything else, I mean, that is abusive, you need to call a spade a spade and say, this is abusive behavior. This behavior needs to be dealt with separately and independently of what's going on that we are talking about as a couple. This is something that you're going to need to seek whether it's individual counseling or you know anger management classes or whatever it might be and then saying you know that's going to be important for both of you to be able to continue with your goal of whatever it is that you want to accomplish here in couples counseling for you to independently take care of your own mental health needs and so sometimes those kind of things will come up where that has to be addressed separately because it relates to what we're trying to accomplish here and so I do think that's not a therapist taking sides. It's just the therapist calling out inappropriate behavior as it happens. And then maybe even providing some guidance for what the client can do to make it better. So saying whether that's, you know, I think you should seek out individual counseling to deal with this, or whether it's how would you feel about apologizing to your partner for what you just said? Or I've seen times where one partner might be, crying and the other partner's not acknowledging it. And I will say something like, you know, I can see your partner is crying. And I know in my relationship, if I were sitting side by side by my partner and they weren't acknowledging that I was crying, I'd feel really hurt. And even just saying that might then have the one partner chime in and nod or say, yes, I am feeling really hurt. And then I could say, you know, other partner, what do you want to do to respond to that? Because responding to how your partner is feeling and how your words or actions are impacting them is going to be as and probably more important than the content of what we were saying, which we can then get back to. And so it's things like that that therapists will do that aren't taking sides, but that are calling out inappropriate behavior and where possible providing a redirect to teach. You know, I absolutely love everything you just said. And I think it's 
incredibly brave, I'm going to say, because I think some therapists are too afraid to do that. And I don't know if you're getting that sense from the conversations you have sometimes with other therapists, but I don't think that everyone is willing to, like you said, call a spade a spade and at least say, and, and I would think, and you can correct me here if I'm wrong, but I would think that for the therapist, this becomes damaging to you as a person if you don't call that out, because this is your office. This is your sacred space. And if somebody is screaming in it or, or denigrating the humanity of another person in it, they are hurting both the other person and you. And you have certain rights as a therapist also to say, no, I am not going to be a part of that. I am not going to be That's right. a, a part of whatever it is you're doing here where, where you get to speak to somebody in this way. Yeah. And just to clarify, you know, I or other therapists have certain rights as a person, you know, and it's just saying this is basic human dignity. And it really is modeling what is appropriate behavior and how to engage in that. And also modeling not standing for inappropriate behavior and, and showing pushback for that, because that's what they should be experiencing in the rest of life and will, you know. And so sometimes what that will end up with is somebody presenting to counseling as an individual being like, all my relationships end and I have no idea why. And it's probably because nobody ever told them, hey, yeah, you can't yell at your partner or, you know, act passive aggressive or give them a cold shoulder for all this time. So, you know, I think been, I guess, lucky to have been around a lot of good therapists who I think would do the same as me. But I certainly acknowledge, you know, I, I don't know every therapist out there, but I do think it's a good therapist that would call out that sort of behavior and not making it a judgment about the person, just making it a judgment about the behavior. No, that's, that's great. You know, one more thing I want to ask you about, uh, because I think it's going to interest a lot of our listeners, especially as we're seeing so many people have struggles is that you're going to end up in a lot of situations where both people in the relationship or the nascent relationship have mental health issues. And what happens when this actually, as I ask this, it it makes me think of Brene Brown and what she has to say on this topic, this question of what do you do when both partners are struggling and just together, you can't get to 100%, right? Like what, you know, like where, I mean, Brene Brown talks about sort of like figuring out, okay, who has a little bit more to give in that moment and that it's not going to be 50, 50, right. And all of that. And, And that's all well and good, but how can people kind of maybe redirect and maybe reach out to other resources in that moment? Like, is it okay to say, yes, I know you're crying right now, but I just can't help you right now. Like, how do you not, because I think those are some of the toughest situations in relationships where both people are hurting. I would agree with you on that. And I would agree with Brene Brown on the idea, we get caught up on a lot as people, this idea that relationships should be 50-50. And I'll say, you know, like over the span of a relationship, yes, but not in every given moment. Some moments are going to be more 2080, you know, or 4060. And and that's okay because that's reality. Sometimes one person's need is greater than another person's. But what I would say are a couple key things to be mindful of here are things we've talked about before, even in this episode. One being, this is one of the times where the value of clear and open communication comes in because if both partners can't clearly and directly express, I am having a hard time right now, then we don't know for sure that the other partner understands that they are having a hard time right now. 
And if they can't articulate what their needs are, oh my gosh, there's any number of guesses any of us could have about what that person might want, you know, in that moment. We've talked about love languages before and people tend to fall victim to thinking, well, with my love language, what I'd want in this moment is this. But if your partner has a different love language, they might want something else. Honestly, regardless, they might want something else. And so if you can clearly and honestly communicate how you're doing, what you need, what you aren't capable of, and your partner can do the same, that's certainly going to make this tricky situation much more manageable. And the other thing, which we've also talked about in prior episodes, is the value of not putting all your eggs in one basket of, and in this case, your support eggs. You want to make sure that you aren't fully dependent on one person for your needs being met. Or if you are, that person needs to be you um, and not anyone else, including your partner. I personally think that it's better to acknowledge that no one person, including you, can meet all of your needs all of the time. And that's where a therapist is a great option because they are a professional who's trained in this and who will help you. By definition, that's their job to help you with these kind of issues if you are struggling and can't do it on your own. So therapy is always an option. But there are other coping strategies you can use that don't involve your partner being the one to help you. There are other people that you might be able to reach out to. And that's one value, although I think there are many others, um, but that is one value of having other close friendships, close relationships with people so that you can reach out to others other than your partner. If you're in need, but your partner's not available to help you, meaning if they're not physically available, but also if they're not emotionally available, if they're dealing with their own issues right now, or if it's an issue between the two of you, you know, you've hurt each other. You can't go talk to the person who's also feeling hurt by you about how they have hurt you and expect them to be sympathetic necessarily in that moment. Hopefully you will be able to eventually, but you know, you may need to talk it out with an unbiased or biased in your favor party first. And and so that is another benefit to making sure that you have other close relationships, if at all possible. But in addition to that, or if you don't have that, other known coping strategies that work for you. And I suggest to people writing this down and keeping it in a handy place like a desk drawer or on your phone, a list of coping strategies to try when you are struggling. And I always tell people, Go through the list one by one. If the first thing doesn't work, do the second thing. If the second thing doesn't work, do the third thing. Odds are good that something or some combination of self-care, coping-related things you do on that list will help you without needing to rely on your partner. And I don't know if I've ever told this story on here before. Sorry if it's a repeat, but um, I had a, a great growing experience with this with one of my exes where we had been in an argument on the phone. We we did not live together. We lived in separate residences. And um, we had gotten in an argument. I don't even remember what about. But at some point, he was done with it. He was over the argument. And he just said, I am done with this. I'm not going to talk to you about it anymore tonight. I'm going to hang up this phone. And I'm going to go out. And don't come over here because I'm going to be out. And don't call me because I'm not answering. I struggled so hard that night because I, I knew he meant it. I knew he wouldn't answer and I knew he would be out and I didn't know where he'd be. So I couldn't go force the conversation any farther, which in hindsight, obviously is a good thing. You need to learn to respect it when somebody says they're done with a conversation. But at the time I was in my twenties, I didn't know as much as I know now. And so it was a rough night for me. I 
sat home and metaphorically beat my head against a wall all night that I could not accept that I wanted to talk this through. And he didn't. I got very little sleep, had many, many tears because I could not accept that the solution I had for how this was going to go was not something he agreed upon and that I had put all my eggs in that basket. I had no one else I could talk to about it at that point in time. Now, to be fair, that was late at night, which is why I didn't call anyone else. Um, I did have people I could have talked to, and I'm sure I did the next day. But that would have been one of those times where a list would have been really handy, where I could have said, you know what helps me during moments like this, helps me to help myself. And in fact, it's very empowering to have a list of what you can do to help yourself, because it feels great to know 24-7, rain or shine, no matter when something goes wrong, I know what will help me get through that tough period. And I can do that thing. You want to have things on your list that you can do 24-7 rain or shine. Not everything on your list needs to be those things, but you want to have at least some. And it's incredibly empowering to feel like, okay, it's disappointing that this person can't or doesn't want to or isn't willing to be there for me. We'll deal with that in the future, but in this moment, I have a need and I need to take care of meeting it. And to feel like you can, that you know how to do that, really takes away the intensity of your disappointment in them for not being there. And so I think that's really important is to acknowledge, yes, sometimes your partner is not going to be able to be there for you and you need to be prepared to deal with that, whether that's for any number of reasons, including that they have their own mental health issue and they just aren't able to be there for you right now. You know, and everybody, I think that's so great. And I think everybody's going to have different items on that list, right? It yes. could be like, they're going to watch a dumb movie on Netflix, or mm -hmm. they're going to cook their favorite meal or whatever it is, or order it. But I, I think one tool, I mean, you, you talked about writing things down for people who like to communicate with others, but they find themselves in the kind of situation you just described, right? An old fashioned email, right, to your therapist yeah. or to your friend, maybe can get you over the hump, right? If it's like, first of all, I would recommend, and I suspect you agree with me, for people generally to avoid having fights or arguments or talk about touchy topics late at night. Sure. Because would. It, has that, it has the potential to just go back places. People are tired, and then if things go south and they don't sleep and they have no one to talk to, like it's just it's just bad news so much of the time. But let's say it does happen for whatever reason. I, I think, you know, having people that you can text or I am, even if they're not gonna respond, or people you can email, whether professional or personal, but you just put it out there right you put it out in the universe you got to put all your feelings there especially you know what's really important i think it's really important to have people who are rooting for the relationship there are times in your life yes when you want to complain to the person that's going to say you need to break up with this person right yeah. but there are times in your life where you need someone who's going to understand that that's not what you need to hear in that moment and that you need to be able to unload on them and even say horrible things about your partner and that the next day that this friend or therapist or whoever it is would still be able to be nice to your partner if they interacted for whatever reason. So yeah, I, I see you nodding. Yeah, so that's I, such I a great point. Bored. Such a great point. You know, it's so great to have a friend who can understand that boundary of they don't need to tell you to break up with the person because they understand that good people have bad days, good people have bad moments. And, and so they don't feel the need to say that, but they also don't feel the need always to point that out in the moment and play devil's advocate. Nothing's more annoying when you want to vent about something. So yeah, friends who get the value of a good vent. Yes, great strategy there. And I would add to um, the value of writing in general. You know, it, it occurred to me as you were talking, I could give some concrete tips here. As you said, different things will work for different people, but 
I can tell our listeners some things that have a high success rate that often help people. And one of them is writing down what you're thinking, because in the act of writing, your brain is having to choose words and choose what order to put those words in. And so you're processing things in a different way than if you're just letting the thoughts swim around in your head. So whether you were writing like in your journal or whether you were writing an email you're never going to send, Definitely don't send that if you're not sure, or if you're writing an email that you do intend to send to a friend or a therapist where you just wanna write something out. Yeah, writing can be really helpful because it does allow you to process the information at a deeper level than just having the thoughts in your head. So writing in general can be helpful. Also, creative activities really of any sort that help your mind to channel those emotions into some product, people, often find that to be very therapeutic. So whether that is art, whether that is writing, I mean, I was thinking like different kinds of art, writing is also art, Um, but any kind of art, listening to music, playing music, things like that are often good channeling kind of strategies, as can physical exertion exercise be sometimes to help with channeling out some of those strong emotions you're feeling. So those are some concrete tips as well that you could try as a coping strategy. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter or on Instagram. We are also on Mastodon. Find us there at swipestrangers at fostodon.org. That's at swipestrangers at F-O-S-S-T-O-D-O-N dot O-R-G. I would like to thank my husband, Carlos Farini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kriujuklu for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye.